Welcome to Season 3 of the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Alexandra Hughes, your Viewpoints host. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast. As always, I am your host, Alexandra, and Thank you so much for, for tuning in. I hope this episode finds you doing well, staying safe, staying healthy. It is the middle of July. It is incredibly hot. My goodness. Like I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving my house. I mean, who am I kidding? I, I wasn't leaving my house before or all year, you know, pandemic in case for some reason you forgot. Um, <laughs> but we have a special episode today. I feel like I always say that, right? Like, I feel like I always say that this is a special episode, almost like, like Oprah, like you get a special episode, you get a special episode. <laughs> Everyone gets like a special episode, almost like participation points. Oh boy. I have to work on that. But I do think that this is a very special episode and it's the most special of all special episodes. Well, if nothing else, it's a little bit different. Uh, and let's explain why. So today's episode actually features uh, another podcast. So it's a podcast crossover episode with the NASPA podcast. So NASPA, which is the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators, has a podcast called Essay Voices from the Field. And so the host of that podcast, which is Dr. Jill Creighton, was actually the old podcast host for this podcast, ASCA Viewpoints. I know it's it's like a bunch of stuff. It's it's like a tangled web and like a family tree. It's okay. Just work with me here. I will hold your hand through this and we will get through this together. Nevertheless, she hosts that podcast now. I host this podcast now. And we wanted to have a dialogue around the topic of like dismantling systemic racism. That is just the conversation that's happening on all over. And we thought it would be pretty cool to kind of engage in this conversation together since typically we're, we're talking to other people and we really don't get a chance to talk like an incredible amount and really share our stories or, um, I don't know, just things that we've been through. Right. And so we figured that would be pretty cool to do. It's about a half an hour. We're releasing this episode on both platforms at the same time. So you may be hearing this twice and that's okay. I really, really hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Jill Creighton to everyone. That way, you know, all the amazing work that she's doing is the associate vice president for student affairs and dean of students and the deputy title nine coordinator at Washington State University. Dr. Jill Creighton oversees the Center for Community Standards, Housing and Residence Life, the Center for Fraternity and Sorority Life, and the Office of the Dean of Students on the WSU Pullman campus, as well as support campus life efforts on all WSU locations across the multi-campus system. Previously, Dr. Creighton served as the Assistant Dean of Students for Conduct and Operations at the University of Oregon, where she supervised the Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards, the University Food Security Task Force, and Operations and Assessment for the Office of the Dean of Students. In addition, she worked at New York University where she led student conduct efforts at 14 
global locations across six continents. Dr. Creighton has served as the president of the Association for Student Conduct Administration and founded, produced, and hosted the first 43 episodes of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. Currently, she serves as the NASPA Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education Region 5 Public Policy Division Representative on the Region 5 Advisory Board and on the Strategies Conference Planning Committee. She received her Bachelor of Arts in Music from Central Washington University and her Master of Education in College Student Services Administration from Oregon State University. She earned her Doctorate in Public Administration at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. We are so excited to have Dr. Jill Creighton back on the show, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. Thank you for having me. Hello. How are you? I think we are all living the dream right now. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, welcome back to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. Jill, the original like ASCA Viewpoints host. (laughs) Such a fun project to start. And I'm just unbelievably thrilled that you've taken it in new directions and really continued the equity and inclusion focus that we had hoped to start with it. And I just love listening to you bring the education to the masses. It's awesome. Well, I'm just glad, you know, I have to admit, when I took this position and when I was offered the position, I was always just so nervous to start because I was like, oh my gosh, Jill has done amazing work. Like just to be able to follow in your footsteps and really just keep this conversation going. And so now I'm even excited to be here with you on NASPA. This is so cool. Yeah. And so for our listeners, Alexander and I are doing an interesting crossover episode experiment today. I think it's probably new for both of us in a lot of ways, but the same episode is going to air both on the NASPA essay Voices from the Field podcast and on ASCA Viewpoints. So if you listen to both shows, you might notice this is in both feeds. Hopefully people like it and they listen to it twice. I just think you get like us twice twice, which is even better. Like I'm totally okay with that. I just like to think that either folks find the show useful or entertaining, or at least one of those things. Probably entertaining. I think we're pretty entertaining. Oh, goodness. Such high standards for ourselves. Well, Alexandra and I really wanted to get together today to talk about the big topic at hand, which is really facing some ugly and often unspoken truths about the profession of higher education, how we're rooted, how we were founded, and also what we do now. We really thought it was important to have this dialogue in this context of the renewed civil rights movement that is happening right now knowing that there is a present social focus on Black Lives Matter and other areas of equity and inclusion. Uh, Alexandra and I are recording this episode during Pride Month. And so there's a lot of intersectional pieces that are happening too, but really also just wanting to ensure that we are still talking about this months from now when the world has moved forward to a different topic, a different focus. We have a major election coming up in the United States and um, what is becoming closer and closer to us now. But Alexandra has done so much work in her career around dismantling systemic racism and oppression inside of the higher education context. And that's why I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying is really true, right? And the question is, is this conversation and are people still going to care two months from now, 
now, six months from now, six years from now, right? And I know that's definitely kind of that context and that and that understanding. And I think the reality is if we're going to talk about higher education and talk about the history of higher education, that is rooted in the history of the United States of America. And in understanding that, that means learning and understanding the history of the United States, which unfortunately has some things in it that you know we may not be too proud of, but we have to talk about it to get people to understand things like systemic racism, equity and inclusion, and really this work. So it definitely becomes important. And as you're talking, you know, Jill, the thing is for us in higher ed, whether we're in student conduct, whether we're in residence life, faculty, staff, like these roles, we're really functioning in these places of power and privilege. And so how are we either implementing the same things or are continuing cycles and systemic cycles, right? Or how are we choosing to dismantle those? And I think that's something that we as practitioners in the field of higher ed have to keep at the forefront of our focus every single day. So let's back up a second, Alexandra. I think the word dismantling is something that we use a lot in higher education, but we very rarely define. What does it mean to you? That's a really good question. So I think for me, dismantling means to break it all down, to tear it down, right? Well, And there's levels to that. Part of it really means to step-by-step understand what it is, to realize what it is that we need to dismantle. This word of dismantle seems so, I think, just so hard. We have dismantled, almost like when people are asking about defunding. These words aren't saying that we are completely getting rid of it. What we're saying is we have to address the structures that are in place and then figure out how we can um, work together to basically make the system better. And sometimes it does mean reach or changing or restructuring how we respond to different situations, different questions, different viewpoints, things that may be a part of our system that are impacting our students and faculty and staff in ways that we don't may not even realize consciously. And I think that becomes important in the work that we're doing every day. If we're talking about dismantling. What about you? If you hear dismantling, what does that mean? It means a lot of different things to me. And oftentimes I think about how we throw the word out there because to folks that have never worked in the equity and inclusion space, it can sound really scary. And what I don't want folks to hear is dismantling as this idea of your work is invalid because that's not what we're saying, right? The, your work is valid and we need to understand that it is rooted in systems that were designed to provide privilege for folks of certain identities over folks of other identities. And right now what we're highlighting in society is an extraordinarily disproportionate impact, negative impact on Black and African American people in the United States, as well as other marginalized identities, whether that be other BIPOC or whether that be people of LGBTQQIA plus identity, various socioeconomic strata, ability and disability status, veteran status, you name it. It's so, so broad. And so what it means to me is really that we need to take a hard look at the way that we practice higher education and particularly student affairs and do what we can to stop reifying systems of oppression. For the Viewpoints listeners, you're probably aware I grew up in the area of student conduct in higher education. That's where the common thread of my entire career has been. And as a person of color and as a person who is dedicated towards better systems of equity, that is a hard space to spend time in when you are essentially looking at systems that are modeled after more globalized systems like our prison pipeline. 
for example. And again, hard to hear in higher ed, but we have choices that we can make that do things differently, that make our practices more equitable for students. Like I, I'll give a call out, shout out to uh, Dr. Patience Bryant, who has her PhD in conflict resolution. And she's doing some amazing work at CSU Long Beach around restorative justice and restorative community healing, which is a different paradigm of approaching student behavior. So that's one way of dismantling a system that may not function well. Exactly. And I think doing exactly what you just said, just calling it out becomes so important. One of the sessions that I've done at conferences, the school to prison pipeline dot, dot, dot is my office a contributor. The one that I just did last week was systemic racism dot, dot, dot is my office a contributor. And those are very provocative titles. And I understand that. But the reason why I think those titles are important is because it's literally calling out exactly what you just did. And I think we have to change the narrative if we're talking about discipline and if we're talking about, you know, this idea of discipline dismantling in a way where I think I put a post up on like the Twitter and social media world and just the other day and it says equity and inclusion are not just passion areas in higher ed. They are critical parts of every interaction. And I think that's what I really want people to understand. I think a lot of times we think of social justice and equity and inclusion as like, this is my elective course that I took, or this is just a passion area that I that I have. But in fact, what we need to be able to say is, no, this is how we need to address every interaction, every conversation. If you are doing something with discipline, right, then it's a level, it's a lens through which you need to look through and understand because it's impacting how that students responding to you, your implicit biases, right, that may be interacting or uh, may be making a particular viewpoint for that student or whatever that looks like. Dismantling means that, right, calling it out and doing what you did as also as saying, look, this is important. And it's important that we address this moving forward. Um, I don't know if you found this, but oftentimes when I talk to people on the show or in different sessions through work, a lot of times we get that question of like, well, I didn't cause this. I didn't start this. And I say, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. But it's our job to fix it moving forward. And that seems to be something that is a common thread that I've heard. And how are we choosing to address things moving forward? That is such a critical question because the system that we operate in higher education are also products of everything that came before us. So we are directly impacted by the K-12 environment, even though a lot of us uh, have no experience teaching or educating in the K-12 space. And one of the things I think about a lot is that higher education in the United States is more or less fairly disconnected from the K-12 experience. And I I often wonder what we should be doing to partner with our K-12 educators to look at common threads of education. So one thing that I posted on my personal social media recently was a thought that, you know, I don't ever remember remember having education about Juneteenth in my K-12 education or the Tulsa riots or uh, even Japanese internment and the Trail of Tears and all of these moments in our collective history that have not been given the space to breathe inside of our educational systems. And so there's a lot of dialogue going on right now about curriculum erasure uh, and, and other similar topics. And I do believe as a higher education, we have an obligation to teach those components of our history. And at the same time, I also wonder why are we waiting until higher education to teach these components of our history? That's that's also not super helpful in the long run, especially because we know many citizens don't go to the community college or university degree seeking programs after high school is finished. So the systemic components that draw us through from childhood to informed adults 
has some work to be done. And I think in higher education and student affairs, especially, we have to figure out where that sits. So for you, where does that sit? It sits everywhere. You know, I think it's interesting because you are absolutely right. We don't get the education. And, you know, I, so I identify as a Black woman, pronouns she, her, and hers, right? And so I think part of it is understanding the fact that people say, well, how did you get into this? How do you know all of these things? And I tell people, I mean, I spent at least 10 years of just researching and education. And that's why I know these things because it's my area, right? Like my passion happens to also be where I'm able to do my research and do my work. But part of it, I think, starts with understanding that these unfortunate truths are a real thing in our country, right? And we have to acknowledge that, like you said. And so as a Black woman, I was very fortunate that uh, my father actually sat me down at like four and showed me video footage of the civil rights movement, showed me video footage of hoses being let out by firemen on people who were marching and dogs and things like that. And it's unfortunate, right? But it's a part of that that he was really trying to, I think, do what he needed to do to protect me as a Black woman in the United States of America. And that in itself is a a whole nother podcast episode, right? But what that allowed me to do, and this is one of the things that I always like to throw out there is say, when were you aware of your race? Typically, as like black people or people of color, let's just point that out, period, typically, you're typically aware that you stand out or you're a little different for some reason at a younger age. And it could be that you stand out or it could be in my case, I mean, I was in the second grade when somebody called me the N-word and it was another student. And so it was actually a white male student at that time. And so that awareness for me happened at such a young age. And I often turn around and ask other people and say, well, like think about when that is. And I found that typically um, for my white counterparts, it was later on in life when they were able to realize or something happened And sometimes it's these conversations that are happening now, right? Sometimes it was when they first went to college and maybe away from people that looked like them or vice versa, right? I think it just depends on everyone's experience. But I think in understanding where that sit and where that sits and where that conversation sits, a lot of it is also perspective and it needs to be everywhere. You're right. Our system K through 12 is we're not teaching history in this country and we're not teaching, let's say, everyone's history in this country because it's more than just things that happen to Black people. It's just all people. What about our indigenous people? What about our different groups? Like you said, Japanese internment camps. That's huge. And those are lessons that I think that we need to have that we're not having. So I think that's kind of where it sits for me as I as I look into it. Um, so I want to ask you, when were you aware of, of, of your race, if you don't mind me asking? It's a really fascinating question for me because I have some really unique aspects of my identity and lived experiences that I think make it very different than uh, someone who wholly grew up in the United States. So for our listeners, just a personal couple of tidbits. I think I've mentioned this before, but I identify as a transracial Asian American cisgendered woman. And I was adopted in essentially very early childhood. And I was born abroad. I was uh, born in Korea, but adopted to a family in the United States that is uh, wholly white identified. And so that has really constructed my racial identity very differently than I think if I had been more of a second culture kid, for example. And then mixed in that, I grew up overseas. So I was adopted to the United States before my first birthday. But then my family had a tremendous opportunity through my dad's job to move to the Middle East. So I spent a good portion of my childhood growing up in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. 
And that is, again, a very unique component of my identity, which has completely changed the way that I think about the social construction of race. Because I grew up in this Middle Eastern society, culture, environment that had different expectations based on gender, based on physical appearance and a number of other things. And the school I attended was at the time called the Saudi Arabian International School of Riyadh, S-A-I-S-R. And the school I attended was children of people that worked for embassies all over the world. And so in my class, if I look at my yearbook from kindergarten and first grade and things like that, the physical phenotypical diversity of the students was so tremendous that race as Americans have constructed it was just not part of the dialogue because it was global. Uh, I had uh, classmates that were born in Ghana, that were born in Israel, that were born in the UAE, that were born in Saudi Arabia, that were born in the United States, born in England, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the way that we constructed our relationships with each other didn't have that same common uh, racialized experience that we do in America. That's not to say it wasn't a component of things because it absolutely was, but it meant for me that I wasn't conscious of how my race would be categorized until I returned to the United States. And that was not until I was uh, late elementary school. And even then, because of my transracial identity mixed with that international experience, I don't really think I was aware of my race until I was probably 12 or 13 because I just knew that I had dark hair and my mom had blonde hair and my dad had brown hair. So people just had different colored hair. And then the boy in my class had, you know, a different lighter skin tone than me than the girl who I sat next to had a darker skin tone than me. So because I grew up with this large stratification of physical appearances in space and a different cultural framework, it really does just truly show me how socially constructed race is in America. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say. Race is a socially constructed thing. That's such a wonderful experience to have. That is so cool, Jill. I learned more and more about you every time we talk. But that in itself just goes to show you how people's viewpoints and the culture, and I say this all the time, you know, culture is a lens through which you see the world. And so, and I, whenever I give this presentation, I always say the glasses that I wear, I don't wear them to be cute. I wear them because I really can't see, like that's like a thing. And so the same way these glasses are shaping the world around me, it's the same thing with culture. And I think that's something that we have to really remember as we have these conversations moving forward. And especially when it comes to education, our students, students, our interactions, and that because it's it's where people coming from and what is their experience with that, that shapes how they see things moving forward. But it's interesting. And I think part of it is, as I, as I sit here and think about it, you talk about the fact that we have to be aware of what's happened in the past. And I think that's the same thing with this conversation. I think a lot of people are under uh, the impression that it was simply, and we saw, you know, about a month ago, that the world essentially blew up in one day. We saw two videos come out, but one video of George Floyd in Minneapolis, right, for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we saw that while you, uh, he, he could not breathe. Then what I always talk about is it wasn't just that video, but on the same day, there was also another video of Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, no relation, in Central Park in New York. And the reason why these videos are so important and in even understanding the history, it really just kind of summarizes the history and what this whole movement is about, is that in that video in Central Park, we have two people, like I said, you know, Black man named Christian Cooper, Amy Cooper, white woman, no relation. But we see where the world watched in horror as she sat here and told someone, told this man, I will call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. 
And he said, but I'm, I'm not doing anything. And I have you, <laughs> I have you being recorded. And we watched in horror as she did just that. And she literally weaponized the use of his skin tone. And I mean, if I would have just heard her, even as a black woman on the recording, it sounded like she was being attacked. It sounded like something was happening and her life was in danger. We see the behind the scenes, but I think the understanding and the realization is that that phone call, if it wasn't for his recording, could have resulted in something happening to him, like what was happening with George Floyd. And the reason why I bring that up is because people think it's just that one day. And I say, no, I think it was just a straw that broke the camel's back, right? But these are incidents that have been happening throughout history and have happened since then. Let's keep that in mind. People that have that have died since then, but it's just, they've been happening on top of the backdrop of the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic. And I think we've, we forget that at times, but we are. And so the world itself, there's just so much going on. And I think people are in pain, but I really love that you talked about the history component because people need to understand it wasn't just that it was the things before that, that led up to that, that really are impacting what we see now and the movement that's coming about. I think there's some really important work happening right now in terms of a renewed commitment towards anti-racism work in our own persons, right? So it's not just an institutional responsibility. It's the responsibility of everyone that works in the institution to do the anti-racism work. And there's an infographic that's floating around. It looks unattributed every time I've seen it, so I don't know who developed it, but it's a series of concentric circles and it's a pathway to becoming anti-racist. And it begins in a fear zone and then moves to a learning zone and then moves to a growth zone. And so if we're going to get practical with our colleagues in the profession, there's some attitudinal components to this, which I think are really critical. So in the fear zone, there's statements like, I deny racism is a problem. I avoid hard questions. I strive to be comfortable. I talk to others who think and look like me. And then we move to the learning zone, which is I recognize racism is a persistent and present problem. I seek out questions that make me uncomfortable. I understand privilege, my privilege in ignoring racism. I educate myself about race and structural racism. And that structural piece is what you and I've been talking about. I'm vulnerable about my own biases and knowledge gaps. And I listen to others who look and think differently than me. And then finally, in that growth zone, things like I identify how I might uh, unknowingly benefit from racism. I sit with my discomfort. I don't let my mistakes deter me from being better. I yield positions of power to those who are otherwise marginalized. And one of the things I really appreciate about this graphic is that it is iterative and it is fluid. And it also reminds us that being anti-racist isn't like an end point. There is no such thing as declaring oneself anti-racist. It's really more about how do I frame my perspective of the world using this lens and how do I focus on internal continuous improvement and understanding the lived experiences of other people, not to say lived experiences as a buzzword, but really truly in the the phenotypical skin that I present and that I wear, I am a person of color, but I will never understand the experiences of people of other colors in in ways other than to say I can translate my own marginalized experiences. And I think that for folks who carry more privileged identities than not, this is almost new in some ways. And so there's there's a lot of opportunity for personal work here. 
I agree. I actually love that graphic. I actually use that graphic and I do the same thing. I'm like, I don't know who came up with this. I found like multiple graphics and I'm always like, I work in student conduct. I am not plagiarizing. I need everyone to know that. I just don't know who to give the credit to. So that's where I'm just like, I, I don't know. But I, I actually love that. And I think that you're right. You know, it's this idea of saying this is a fluid process and it's something that we're constantly working on and constantly moving towards. And I think we have to understand that all of us hold both privileges and marginalizations and in all aspects. And so there's going to be multiple things that that impact us from different directions. You know, you remind me of something. Um, I switched from using the term, I think this was last year, cultural competency to cultural humility. And I actually got that from Katika Harris, who's going to be president-elect of ASCA next year, and Dr. Kyle Williams, who currently is sitting and chairing the equity inclusion at ASCA, Dr. Williams and Katika, they actually talked about saying it's cultural humility and this idea, and I've loved it and I've, I've used that everywhere I go. And I say, look, we're never going to reach competency. Like we're never going to fully be there and know and get there. And that's okay. But the idea of humility means that we understand that we're not going to get there. We understand that people have these different experiences and different uh, privileges and marginalizations, but that we're striving to understand and striving you know, to, to get it right. And I think that's the part that we have to focus on. No one's going to be perfect. And we need to lean into that uncomfort and not be scared to be uncomfortable. Because let's think about it. These are uncomfortable conversations and they're hard, especially you and I, we have these uncomfortable conversations a lot. This is what we do. We talk, we speak to people. But if someone doesn't really talk about this, then it's like, well, how do we get them to lean into that uncomfort? And part of that, I think, is providing the vocabulary to do so. That's a really critical component of things. There's an Instagram post that I saw the other day that really spoke to me, which was about some of the coded language we use in academia to reify systems of privilege and oppression, particularly around words like grit and words like academic rigor and things like that. And, you know, I also hear often folks saying, you know, let's give grace. And so while I believe in those things, I also want us to understand that sometimes, not always, but sometimes they are used to really marginalize people, right? So when we say let's give grace and dialogues on diversity, equity, inclusion, oftentimes folks in privileged positions are asking folks who are marginalized to ignore the pain that is caused by sometimes using language that is really, really harmful or by sometimes even asking hard questions. So it's a, it's a really fine balance in higher education between not putting the work on folks who are marginalized, between creating a shared language and a shared dialogue to actually have these hard conversations, and then also not continually putting people of marginalized identities in positions to be harmed by others. And I don't know how we get that right. I just know that we're still working on it. Well, and I think that's true. I think there's this level. I think one of the things that I found and I've been an advocate of, especially recently, is like pay people of color for their time and experience and work. And I I say that, and you know, that's easier said than done in higher ed, right? We know that if we're working in higher education, it's because we genuinely love doing this work. That's the thing about higher ed, us as educators, and we know that. And that in itself is a whole nother systematic thing, probably in this country that we need to look at and the idea of educators and, and you know, and, and that. But we know that we are in this work because we love educating. We love learning. We love creating and helping shape and molding and hopefully 
making the next generation better than our generation, right? And preparing them and equipping them. But part of that where we can, and I, I love that you've, you've brought that up because it can be re-traumatizing to people of color to experience. And I tell people, I'm like, I'm a black woman. This is my lived experience. But you also want me to talk about it as well. That's constantly replaying that and living. And so I often share this. I say, there are people like me who are very comfortable and I have these conversations. It also takes like self-work. And I'm sure you can speak to that as well, where there's times where I have to step away from it because it's, it is a lived experience. But to remember that not every person of color or a marginalized identity that you would like to address, right? Like we're talking about the fact that we're in Pride Month this month, has the ability, the language, like you said, or just the emotional capacity to explain to you these things. And that's the part where you have to really be okay with that and say, that's okay. Luckily, and what I love now is there's so many resources and things and lists that have come out, whether that's podcasts like (laughs) our shows or I mean, books to movies. I mean, there are some great things. I don't know if there's anything that you've seen from any of those lists, whether it's shows or stuff that you've kind of dipped and dived back into that have really like excited you or maybe some new things that you've learned. I really love the Netflix show, Dear White People. If folks haven't watched that yet, it's totally worth it, especially for higher ed nerds like us. The show is set at a fictionalized historically black college and university. And it's so important because I think one of the core messages I took out of the first two seasons was really that there is no one right way to do this, that everyone is bringing a different unique lens to the challenges that are happening in higher education. And, you know, as a microcosm of America, higher education faces some unique things that don't end at the campus borders. There's just some really great pieces to take away from from that show. So that's the one that I would recommend if I if I only get to recommend one today. But Alexandra, we are coming up at the end of our time now. And I know that we could just go on for probably a long time on this subject. I really enjoy this dialogue so much with you. As we run to the end of our show, we always like to end with a lightning round. Are you ready? I'm scared, but I'm ready. <laughs> I think. I don't know, but I trust you. Got you. Okay. All right. Let's do this. All right. Seven questions in under 90 seconds. Here we go. Okay. Number one, if you were a conference keynote speaker, what would your entrance music be? Beyonce, um, run the world. Boom. Number two, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were five? Um, A princess. Number three, who's your most influential professional mentor? Dr. Andrea Agnew. She actually has been amazing. She was the previous associate dean of students at the University of South Alabama, and I adore her. Excellent. And number four, who's your favorite author, personal or professional? Oh, this is so hard. Wait, wait, wait. 90 seconds. Oh, God, this is making me nervous. Um, You got um, this. I need to think of something. You would think that I would know this since I read so much. Uh, Pass. Come back. Come back to that one. Number five, what is your essential student affairs read? Microaggressions. Oh, that's my answer for last one. Let's do that. My my, my favorite one right now because of my dissertation would be uh, Microaggression Theory by, by Daryl Wing Sue and all the writers there. So we'll go with that. And my favorite read right now, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit in the Cafeteria Together? I think that one. We'll go with that. All right. Uh, number six, the podcast that you've spent the most hours listening to in the last year other than ASCA Viewpoints. The read? <laughs> I'll go with the read. And then, you know, because I was going to say, I spent a lot of time doing viewpoint stuff. That would be that. So that's a fun one that's not higher ed. That's fun to just think about and get your mind off of things. And number seven, any shout outs you'd like to give personal or professional? 
Yes to you. You're amazing. I want to give a shout out to you, Jill, because you've done such amazing work. You've done amazing work on these platforms. You're amazing. Also want to shout out my mom and my dad because I love them. And why not? Because they never get shouted out. So yes, those are my shout outs. That was hard. That was seven minutes. You did great. Oh my God. Seven questions. Jesus. <laughs> okay. All right. That was stressful. I need to be prepared next time. I need to have better stuff. Okay. Well, that was so much, but I'm going to like ease some of the stress and, and bring the stress <laughs> down. I'm not going to put you through that stressful part. And so at the end of our show in ASCA Viewpoints, one of the things that I love doing is asking people, what is something that's giving you life? In the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of this world that we find ourselves in, in the pandemic and in life, and you know this work that we do where we're constantly giving ourselves to our students and those around us, is there a book? Is there a podcast? Is there a recipe? Is there a Cricut machine? That's mine. I'm loving the Cricut Explore Air Maker craft world. What is something that's giving you life that you would like to share with people that they could, they could look into. So I am part of the graduating class of 2020. I finished my doctorate in May, which Dr. means <laughs> that's not something I'm ever going to get to take off ever again, which is, was an interesting moment for me. But because of that, I decided that I was going to take a break from heavy intellectualism outside of work. And I have dove headfirst really hard into the world of Animal Crossing New Horizons. <laughs> So uh, because I didn't get to have a graduation this year, I recreated my Dr. Wagalia for my little Animal Crossing villager. I'm trying to collect recipes from Celeste the owl right now. I mean, it's a, truly a little utopian escapism digital island. I'm having a good time in there for now. I don't think it's going to last very long, but it's helping my brain relax at the end of the day. I mean, we didn't think the pandemic was going to last very long either. And here we are I'm halfway through the year. So I say I'm all for Animal Crossing and all for this and maybe I will have to come visit your little island world please do I will, I will dm you my friend code <laughs> okay we'll do well, we're gonna work on this well that was perfect Alexandra if folks would like to reach you after the show today how can they do that Oh my gosh, they can reach me in so many places. So I think first off, if you would love to listen to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, that is ASCA Viewpoints in all the places. If you want to email the show, it's ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. We're also ASCA Podcast on Twitter. And as of recently, I've made an Instagram for ASCA Podcast. So that's the same thing on there. And then if people want to tweet me or reach out to me, I am Alexandra's View on the Twitter and and all of the things. And then, yeah, you can email me on there, like I said, with the podcast, and we'll make sure that people can can reach out to me. So now I'm going to ask you, Jill, people want to reach you because I know people there like are want to do this. Where can they reach you? I'm always happy to chat with folks on Twitter at Jill Creighton, uh, J-I-L-L-C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just let me know that you're connecting through the podcast. Otherwise, I'm going to go, I'm not sure who you are. And then you can reach me at Washington State University and my email address is on the Dean of Students website. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this show, this episode. Us having this. I'm sure our listeners are going to be like, what is this? This is fun. And I hope they enjoyed it and they're excited. And maybe we need to do some more of these in the future. Bring it on. I'm so excited. Alexandra, thank you so much for sharing your voice with us today. Thank you. Thank you. 
This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Alexandra Hughes. That's me. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and become more visible to our podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, feel free to reach out to us by email at ascapodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at ASCA Podcast. If you'd like to connect with me on Twitter, you can find me at Alexandra's View. Talk to us. We talk back.